You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Yeah, and so that's why I'm, I'm not buying leverage. You know, I'm, I'm more interested in quality. And so like you were saying, you know, what what are you looking for in private invest, uh, private placements? You know, I've, I've done a lot of private placements and I almost prefer no warrants. You know, because that that suggests to me that the company's high enough quality that it doesn't have to issue warrants. Thanks for tuning in to Mining Stock Education. I'm your host, Bill Powers. Today's show is brought to you by Trilogy Metals. If you're looking for a quality copper developer, look no further than Trilogy Metals. You can find more at TrilogyMetals.com. This is a sponsor and we feature them. And the company has been very successful of recent with a positive feasibility study for their Arctic project. And the government up there in Alaska has issued a positive record of decision for the Ambler Access Road, which will open up all their projects and future successful exploration to profitable mineral extraction. So that was a huge development where we see other Alaskan projects having some contention and difficulty. Trilogy seems to be progressing nicely. The ticker symbol in New York and Toronto on the big board is TMQ. And again, go to TrilogyMetals.com if you want to learn more. Well, my guest today is editor and analyst of Exploration Insights. The website is explorationinsights.com. Joe Mazumdar joins me again. Joe, thanks for coming on Mining Stock Education. And let's begin by talking about copper. For the last six months, copper has been on a tear. It's about $3 and I believe six cents as we speak, which is uh, up from something like $2.10. It seems not long ago. Is this the start of the expected copper upcycle? What is your commentary on how copper has been performing? Thanks for having me, Bill. Um, uh, with respect to copper and a lot of base metals, we obviously saw that big plunge in a lot of industrial metals in the beginning of the year when China had you know, the, the, the big plunge in industrial production and shut down a lot of their uh, manufacturing during the first quarter due, due to the uh, uh, coronavirus pandemic, which, which initiated there. Uh, but everything's picked up since then. Uh, and so the demand has come back as China has come back online and China is obviously the biggest consumer of these metals, uh, and, and including copper. Uh, the issue for me on copper, what, why I'm a little, you know, more... Um, sanguine on that metal is because of the more on the lack of supply of projects that fits into this potential 2025 window of, of uh, you know forecast deficits and so we really need to know what projects exist right now at you know potentially an advanced stage pfs or feasibility study stage because those are the ones that are going to fill this gap and there's not a lot of them and interestingly you know because of the pandemic and the way the pandemic moved from Asia into the Americas, it's really seriously impacted a lot of South American or Latin American uh, countries, including some of the biggest that produce copper, including Chile and Peru, you know, and, and Brazil somewhat in terms of copper manufacturing, but Brazil definitely because the whole country. And so a lot of these ones have been impacted not only from a production standpoint, but also from the development standpoint, because, you know, uh, building in this environment of COVID with peak construction and trying, you know, to keep everyone safe in that and to lower, uh, you know, the, uh, the risk of, uh, you know, catching it, you know, it's slowed 
a lot of, of uh, you know, development projects as well as productivity, and that's hitting the market. And so that makes me very sanguine about copper. And that's why, you know, I, I would tend to look for copper projects in, in either expiration, but, you know, potentially more so in advanced expiration to, you know, to, uh, you know, feasibility study stage to look for projects that fit this 2025 window. Um, so, you know, I, that's that's why I'm, I'm, I'm keen on copper as much from the demand side because of battery manufacturing, but uh, but also because of, uh, you know, the the idea that there's just not a lot of copper projects out there. Joe, I'd like to get your thoughts on nickel. As I was preparing for this interview, I was thinking perhaps Elon Musk is the most influential tweeter on the markets after Donald Trump. And there's this rumor out there that made Reuters that Giga Metals is in talks with Tesla. So the share price is up 50% on Friday just because of this rumor. You know, what, what are your thoughts about Tesla, the nickel market, and how the nickel markets, the nickel equities, excuse me, are performing and what's driving it? Is it essentially Tesla that's driving the nickel equities right now? Well, you know, background on nickel, you know, I, I was keen on nickel at the beginning of the year and uh, made an investment last year in a, a ASX listed explorer in uh, in Vietnam of all places. And the idea there was exposure to the nickel market that feeds battery manufacturers. Because as you well know, you know, when the battery manufacturers were beginning to talk about electric vehicles, the form of the battery, the, the chemistry was almost a one to one to one ratio of nickel, manganese and cobalt. You know, now the sort of... Uh, uh, the standard is now an 811, where there's eight times more nickel than manganese and cobalt. And cobalt is being put down with respect to uh, being an input in the battery because of where the majority of cobalt comes from. So I, I wasn't keen on cobalt, but in terms of ex uh, exposure to this battery you know, phenomenon for, for electric vehicles and especially scooters in Asia, was exposure to, to copper, exposure uh, uh, also to, to nickel and into in the intermediate as also uh, you know palladium and so I was interested in all three metals and so hence I, I, I took that ASX uh, listed explorer in uh, Vietnam the important thing for me was to see that it was nickel sulfide uh, somebody that could produce a concentrate that could become a nickel sulfate that would feed an intermediate product into the battery market. And so to know that it works and would be a good enough quality, I, I looked for a company that could you know, sign an agreement downstream with a battery manufacturer or a car company. That way you get a bit of a stamp of approval that this is actually, you know, could work. You know, the mining part of it isn't hard and generating a nickel concentrate isn't hard. The difficult part is generating, you know, going from the nickel concentrate to the nickel sulfate and beyond. And that's where the battery manufacturers come in. They don't know how to mine. They don't know how to produce a concentrate. But that gap between the concentrate and the nickel sulfate is really where, where you want that stamp of approval. And so for Tesla to come in, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if it's you know, it's a rumor, speculation or whatever. But for Tesla, you know, potentially to say, oh, hey, here's a nickel project that we might be interested in, you know, uh, for an investor to look at that, and if it's true, then they say, oh, well, that means that this project works for them. 
you know, I don't know what the, you know, the economics are behind building it. If Tesla wants to give them all the capital, because that's not what a lot of these battery manufacturers are doing. Uh, they'll help them build a plant, but they won't help them build the mine. So, so uh, that provides a stamp of approval, you know, and you've seen it in the lithium market, you know, with, with Oro Cobre, when Toyota, the car manufacturer came in and helped them build their project in, uh, in Northwest Argentina. So that downstream help is, is, is something that people are looking for, I believe, uh, with, with these battery metals like nickel uh, and more so lithium. And, and, but that's not really necessary for, for copper because copper is much more fungible than those two other commodities. But nickel is obviously more fungible than lithium. Lithium's a harder, harder one. Joe, you invest based on fundamentals and you do a lot of due diligence before you recommend a company in your newsletter. But when it comes to rumors, they're plentiful in the, the junior resource sector regarding drill results. It's going to be bad. It's going to be good. Or a rumor such as Giga is going to get bought out by Tesla. What is your approach when you see a rumor and you see a stock move based on a rumor? Is it just hands off? I'm not going anywhere near that. Or have you ever taken a gamble on one of these rumors? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, it's all speculation. If, and if I own that stock and it was going up 50% on a rumor, I might just sell it and then buy it back after you know the rumor dies down. Uh, the idea, you know, behind, you know, the valuation of these stocks is does it actually have anything? And the problem with these rumors is that it will inject some liquidity and it will inject some value into the company that are based on no news flow. And if that and if that, you know, if you take the foot off the accelerator on that rumor and it starts to die down, all that value liquidity sort of drains and then you have to wait for it again unless that company has some underlying value. Like it's delivering news flow. It's got a great working capital position. You know, it's hitting on all its catalysts. And if there's that kind of value in it, you know, uh, that's great. That's fantastic. But I mean, we see that not only in speculators, but we see, you know, that with with you know newsletter writers that will talk up a stock, it goes up fifty percent that day. You know, I would never buy it based on that. And I don't recommend anybody buying it on that. If, if I, I don't recommend the stock, but I say that I'm buying the stock. But I tell my subscribers, you know, if it's in a liquid stock, it might run up, you know, so just wait for it, because that impact is ephemeral. It'll, it'll, it'll go away. And then you could buy it three or four days from now. Because fundamentally, I think it's a good company, but don't pay a 20% premium for it. You know, and timing is important when you're buying these things. You want to get it at the lowest valuation uh, such that the intrinsic value is in there, but none of the upside. What, what other commodities are you looking at besides uh, nickel and copper? Any any other commodities you're bullish on? Well, absolutely. I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're into gold and silver uh, and uh, uh, copper, as I said. And so, so I, I sort of, uh, you know, divided my investment thesis this year between those Precious metals, gold and, you know, silver, you know, uh, having a higher beta than gold uh, with respect to, you know, negative yielding debt, expanding monetary policies globally. That sort of thing was where I put my investments into gold and silver for even more leverage. And then the idea of, you know, a reduction in greenhouse gas emissions, generating more electric vehicles. So this battery manufacturing thesis that I filled with, with copper and nickel and in the interim palladium as well. 
And also, I'm also looking right now at, at iron ore as well in, in terms of, uh, you know, potentially, you know, um, this uh, uh, reconstruction of a lot of uh, infrastructure and in com- countries that needs to be rebuilt. So th- that's also a, a theme that I'm uh, that I'm uh, sort of studying. Would you look more towards the producers for iron ore exposure, or would you go for the developers? Well, I mean, um, I've done that with with gold, where you know the first kick happens on the producing side. And so, you know, I would buy something like a Pan American silver, which has done really well with respect to not only gold, but the silver exposure, even though they've been hit by, uh, you know, the pandemic with respect to production. Um, uh, That's something I could consider. But right now, I would probably be more leaning towards undervalued companies with advanced projects that the market's not seen. Recently, we saw Eric Sprott strike again with a $78 million Canadian investment in first majestic silver. Uh, What's your commentary here? We usually see him put two to 20 million in smaller juniors, but to go into a producer on the New York Stock Exchange, that was uh, quite the investment. Yes. I mean, the thing is that, I mean, obviously he likes silver and potentially the investments he's made in all these little junior silver explorers that are really their leverage is based on discovery more potentially than silver going, you know, or doubling, you know, it's potentially better to have the, uh, you know, the exposure to, to a silver producer such, you know, like Pan American or somebody like that, 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 that provide even more leverage to the underlying commodity if that's what you're so keen on. Uh, so, uh, you know, and, and you can't make that kind of investment in a junior and not own, you know, a hundred percent of it. So, uh, you know, I, I can see his point with respect to, he's looking for a, a levered company, silver exposure liquid that could basically take an investment of this size and him not having to own the entire company. We've seen a slurry of financing these last few months. What is your general thoughts on what we've been seeing and what type of financing has attracted your money in the past few months? Okay, I mean, if we stick to gold, because a lot of the, a lot of the financings, not, not exclusively, uh, but many of the financings have been gold and silver, but we also have seen, you know, uh, you know, copper, nickel, as you said, and and some other metals and companies exposed to those metals gaining, uh, uh, gaining, uh, you know, uh, uh, more financings. And what what I've seen to date is like at, to the end of July on the TSX venture, where you know uh, half the companies are mining related, that there's basically you know about thirty percent, I would say. Uh, an uptick in uh, year-to-date numbers in terms of financings. Like in June, July, according to the S&P Global Market Intelligence, you know, we've seen more than a billion dollar raised in both months, U.S. You know, uh, the concern would be, you know, as we come into the U.S. presidential elections, which is a big point of uncertainty, is, is all that uncertainty would be good for gold up to a point, and then any resolution of that uncertainty, or let's say uh, the uh, you know the, the the implementation of a a virus for COVID nineteen, you know that might have a negative impact on gold. You know, and if we have negative sentiment, you know, when those four month hold of all those private placements comes off, you know, do we see a down drop? 
in a lot of these equities that raised money. So that would be the biggest near-term risk that you would see for resource investors? Yeah, and so that's why I'm, I'm not buying leverage. You know, I'm, I'm more interested in quality. And so like you were saying, you know, what what are you looking for in private invest, uh, private placements? You know, I've, I've, be, I've done a lot of private placements and I almost prefer no warrants, you know, because that, that suggests to me that the company's high enough quality that it doesn't have to issue warrants. And, and also right now, everybody seems to be getting financed. There's no there's no that's not a distinguishing factor for any company like in, in hard times because oh that person's got money. They got money at, you know, they didn't take much of a discount. They didn't issue warrants. You think, wow, that, that's a good company because nobody else is getting any money. But right now, everybody's getting money. So it's not a distinguishing feature. So for your, you know, listeners, you know, look at the type of financing, look at the demand, look at, you know, it, most of these ones tend to be now upsized and oversubscribed and also trade almost at a premium to the financing because they strategically leave a lot of demand still out there. And so you can almost gauge the quality of the company sometimes by how much of a premium actually it trades at the end of the week when they announce the financing because that's the amount of demand they left out there. So if they do hit a good catalyst, that's all the demand that's going to be buying on the market, you know, which is what you want more more so. So so right now I'm still looking at you know decent valued private placements where a company is just starting in grassroots exploration, but some of them are drilling old mining districts where you know it hasn't been explored for a while there's new exploration techniques you know they're drilling deeper you know uh, looking for higher grade and potentially where it was an open pit looking underground potentially a lower footprint or some of them that were underground they're looking potentially open pit because of the higher gold price but really when i see one of these private placements it's got to be people i know that i trust that, so I trust them to maintain a decent share structure. There's not a lot of cheap shares that are going to be coming out every three months. Uh, you know, uh, uh, they're not going to do uh, you know a lot of financings. They're going to generate catalysts. They're going to put the money in the ground. They're not going to blow out their GNA. It's not a lifestyle company. All that stuff, you know, uh, I don't have to de-risk because I trust the management team to do the right thing. And so, so management for these junior explorers is really important. And so I will wait for those deals as opposed to just doing deals just to do deals on the, you know, the, the fear of missing out sort of uh, a philosophy. So Joe, you would do a post IPO grassroots early stage explorer with no warrant. You would, uh, cause that's part of the enticement, right? At that stage, if you're taking the risk is the warrant, but for you, you don't need that warrant just to clarify that. No, I don't need the warrant because the warrant suggests to me that they need to issue it because the demand wasn't strong enough. When, when I, most of the, the financings I see of companies that make sense don't need to issue a warrant because they don't have to entice them with the warrant because they can show them the asset, show them the management team, show them the jurisdiction. And that's what says, okay, this is a premium asset. If you want it, I'm not giving you a warrant. And then, well, I want it. So I'm, I'm willing not to take the warrant. Other ones that the warrant is the enticement. It's not the asset. So you almost have a semi disinterested shareholder that's waiting for the fourth month, four month hold to, to finish sell the share, clip the warrant, and move on. And they don't really care about the asset. 
It's just, it's just like flow through. Why should anybody in Canada, because it's you know supposedly a tier one jurisdiction, why why should you have to do flow through? There should be demand for it, hard dollars, where which gives you more flexibility in terms of where you spend the money, how you spend the money, the timing on that. And, and then you don't have a lot of disinterested shareholders because in four months, most of those guys that bought it, you know, who don't really care what the company does, they're just going to sell it for the tax gain, you know. Uh, so, you know, when you look at these private placements, you got to really think about, you know, okay, the asset, the people and that and, and you know, uh, what is the private placement telling you? For me, you know, I'd buy it in the market as well. You know, uh, after the private placement, because sometimes it trades lower, you know, after they get the money. So if, if I like the company, I'll wait for it. I'll wait for it, you know, because I picked up things like Liberty Gold and Bellevue Gold, uh, you know, in March when the when the market tanked. I knew I liked those companies, but I thought they were too expensive. You know, so you sit there, wait, and boom, you can get it. So I, I wouldn't be running into any of this right now. Like I own a lot, of, I've you know done a lot of buying and selling over the last twelve months, and I believe I got the portfolio in a good place. And so right now I'm, I'm reaping the benefits of positive news flow from from these companies who are in jurisdictions that under the COVID nineteen pandemic they can still work, you know, and that's a key part of the entire thesis. So Joe, would you keep on that note, would you hold on to a junior that didn't have steady news flow due to COVID-19? What what would you have to see in a junior for you to hold on to that junior if there wasn't going to be steady catalysts? Okay, I've got a couple of those that have that are overexposed to Latin American countries like Peru, um, Brazil, and uh, Chile. One of them I sold because I didn't see any potential news flow over the next six to 12 months and that dollar that I've got in that company would be better spent somewhere else. So I did sell some. Other ones I haven't sold because I know that they will be drilling soon or they will be generating some news flow. Uh, so so that that's the other issue is that, you know, can they generate news flow? Is there potential? What's the valuation? Another one, the valuation that I did on the one I sold, I just didn't see what's going to change. You know, in terms of news flow, so I, I sold it. Uh, the other one I kept because uh, I knew that they were working some of their own assets down there, and they were beginning to gain access in the value. The risk to reward ratio was asymmetric on the downside on that one. Yeah, that makes sense. And Joe, before you go, last question. Uh, just learned that PDAC 2021 is going virtual. AME Roundup is going virtual. Honestly, I was disappointed, especially about PDAC, because I enjoyed that conference in person. What are your thoughts on how this is going to impact the the sector? I mean, deal making, investors finding, meeting with management one on one. None of that's going to happen, or it's going to be different, I should say. Yes, it's going to be very different because you know one of the things that we see is that the expiration expenditures by major companies is low. So they're spending four, almost four times more on GNA than they are on expiration. And some of it might be that they're not keen on expiration anymore, that, they're, that they want to do more M&A potentially or do more strategic alliances or invest in juniors or something like that. But problematically, COVID-19 travel restrictions makes their ability to do due diligence you know, uh, problematic. And so there might be a dam of potential M&A transactions that are sitting behind all these impediments 
that we might not see for a while because you know their own investor base does not want them to do a transaction without due diligence. You know we've seen you know uh, some minimal due diligence transactions happening by some Chinese state-owned companies, uh, but otherwise these Western companies they they might have their hands tied with respect to doing any transactions. You know the SSRM and Alicer I think they were just approved today, but they did most of their site visits pre-PDAC when they could still actually travel. Yeah, and I've heard of other third parties being contracted also to do the due diligence for lenders or mining companies. Yeah, and they have to be in that country. And so that's easy to do in in, in Canada, but potentially problematic if it's the DR Congo, you know? If you're new to Joe's work, please do head on over to Exploration Insights. He writes an excellent, well-respected newsletter. You can find all the information on his website. Also follow him on Twitter. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. Joe, as always, I appreciate uh, your coming on this show and uh, touching base every few months with your insights. So thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.